Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shy Day New York. So thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is Michael Fanuel. He's a former marketer for General Mills, a one-time ad agency strategist, and now the author of the new book, Stop Making Sense, The Art of Inspiring Anybody. Michael, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast. Oh, Rob, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, good. Then, by the way, did I miss anything in your uh, illustrious career? Nothing. That's good. Okay, good. Very Alter good. boy. Very, <laughs> very good. <laughs> so listen, I've enjoyed uh, reading this this book, and um, I guess uh, I, I have to I have to I have to ask ask the question this this way: What inspired you to write it? Ah, uh, it's a good question. Years ago, about a dozen years ago, I was forced to go see U2, and I hated Bono. I thought he was a pontificating, blowhard, ego-fueled loudmouth. But but I had to go. It was my best friend, Jersey John's bachelor party, and I had to go. And I was determined to hate myself. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen U2 live, but it is rock and roll church, right? Bono is preaching. He's waving flags. He's against racism and sexism and farts, everything. Oh, yeah. No, he's if, against if, everything. If you've got an ism, he's against right? it. Right. And, uh, and I found myself standing, and my arms are in the air, and I want to quit my job, and I want to join Amnesty International. And, I, and I'm like, what the hell is happening to me? How did I, in the course of a two-hour rock and roll show, go from hating this man to wanting to change my life? Because, And uh, I, I did come to my senses after the show, but I also got obsessed with the idea of inspiration. How does it happen? What happens to our brains? How do we do it? Uh, and, and, and I realized there was so little written on it academically. Right. The psychologists had studied management, leadership, and persuasion, sure. but inspiration was always a little artsy-fartsy. Right, right. Wow, so it's Bono's fault. It's Bono's fault. Well, in your book, I'll tell you, you had me at Bowie. So, uh, you know, the book opens uh, with that great, uh, you know, great piece talking about the, the creation of heroes. So, all right, so interesting. So uh, I heard this question on another podcast, so I'm going to throw it out to you and, and see how you answer it. So what's the thesis of the book? Yeah, I, I guess it's the notion that inspiration and persuasion opposite and antagonistic forces, Mm. that the more you try to reason and logic and argue and bullet point your way to anything, the less likely you are to really jazz people, to stoke people, that that, that, that to, to get the benefit of inspiring yourself, your team, the world, your community, that to get the benefit of inspiring, mm. of making people feel powerful, feel like giants, feel capable of doing anything, you've got to kind of short circuit all the thinky, thinky, rational bits and get to get to the heart of the person. Right. Yeah, I think what's powerful in your book is um, it was almost a punk rock notion while we're talking about music, and that this was uh, DIY inspiration. Like you can literally, you know, grab onto the muse, and you you actually have kind of a way of getting people to do that. I think that's it's it's a very pragmatic way to inspire people. You know, for you to be inspiring, I guess is more precise. I I hope so. I, I mean, what. What, what I was thrilled to discover is that anybody can inspire. It is a learnable, practicable skill. You don't need to be Bono. You don't need to be a muse. You just need a lot to allow yourself to be emotional. 
So, so, so neuroscientists now now say that inspiration works through our mirror neurons. Mm-hmm. They're the parts of our brain that help us learn by mirroring what we see in the world. And it usually works with, with, with behavior. Mm-hmm. You see your mother's mouth move, mirror neurons fire, your mouth moves, you learn to mm-hmm. speak. But, but they've discovered it works with feelings. Mm-hmm. If you see someone sad, you feel sad. They, they call them Gandhi neurons. They're literally the biological thing that helps create empathy, helps us feel one another's feelings. So if you want to inspire, if you want people to be passionate, you need to be passionate. You need to express your feelings. You need to express your emotions. And that is such a natural human thing. The only thing that gets in the way is the freaking world that tells us to chill out and calm down and think rationally. Well, I, I can't wait to get into this because you, you 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 spend time on the client side. So we're gonna I want to hold that for one second because I think it's it's very interesting what you're saying. Um, you know, we also. Uh, we try to look for these disruptions, and I think um, you know the convention is that you know being inspiring is some kind of gift from the gods, you know. And you've got a you know kind of an interesting uh, you know piece where you talk about Kennedy and, and, and JFK and what have you that you know you're sort of blessed to be inspiring. But again, just as you're saying here, and just as you say in the book, the disruption is that being inspiring is something you can learn. I mean, this is a disruption. People would never think about this. That's right. You know, they would sort of wait, you know, and you, you know, tell these funny stories about the muses. And... Yeah. Well, one of the, the favorite things that I learned in writing this book is about mondegreens. Mondegreens are when you mishear the lyric to a song, but you think you know what the lyric I, I, I is and you this. sing it that this. way, yeah. right? So, so I, I grew up loving the Eurythmics song, but I always thought it was Mama Bear wants to use you. That That's not that's not the lyric. And, you know, I just saw Rocket Man. Some people really think Elton John is saying, hold me closer, Tony Danza. He's not. He's not. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter because the way music works is a, it's a little bit what, what, what they call top-down, literal, rational. There are stories, but it's mostly bottom-up. It's about the emotion. It's about the attitude. Miles Davis has a great quote. He says, anybody can play music. The note is 20 percent. The attitude of the motherfucker playing it is eighty percent, and 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 it's true, and it's you're, why you're, you're anybody not can inspire for miles. <laughs> <laughs> no, motherfucker is eighty percent. But 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 it's why anybody can inspire because we all mm. have a natural capacity to be emotional. Wow, yeah, I, I still can't get uh, Tony Danza. <laughs> It's amazing. How does that work with the headlights on the highway? I do my, not my, know. My, my favorite is, is is Google Eye of the Tiger uh, misheard lyrics. It's the most mondegreen heavy song out there. People think it's about Ivan the Kaiser, high with the Thai girl, soaking her bread in the night. I mean, it, it, the, the lyrics are preposterous. But the feeling, the feeling even if it's, if, it's, if it's Kaiser or Tiger, you still get the feeling, right? You do. Amazing. You do. Amazing. It's those beats. So, yeah, I mean— uh, just kind of going back to Bono, there's an interesting story I think he tells that you share in the book about uh, his leather pants. Yeah. And uh, again, this Bono thing is, is, is kind of a theme throughout the book. And I, I love this moment uh, that you talk about when you were uh, working on the agency side about, you know, you psyching yourself up, you know, being the Bono of advertising. I mean, I mean maybe talk to people a little bit, too, about how you inspired yourself in that moment. Yeah. Bono was asked, how do you do it? How do you do it, dude? How do you get on stages night after night and make millions of people move and you've raised billions of dollars for all sorts of great causes? You've dazzled world leaders. You've gotten them to forgive sub-Saharan debt. Like, like how do you do it? And Bono said, uh, he said, I 
don't. I put on the leather pants and I let the leather pants tell me what to do. And I just love that notion that every now and then you've got to put yourself in go mode. I love facts and logic and reason and thinking to figure out what you want to do. Mm. But when it's go time, that stuff is weight. That stuff is an anchor. And I, and I think whether you're walking into a room to win a pitch for a great big client, whether you're talking to your child who you want to inspire, whether you're trying to jazz your team to work another long weekend, you, you've got to sort of mentally slip on those leather pants. You've got to find your kind of <laughs> swagger. You've got to find your, your sort of rock star emotiveness or your disco emotiveness or your country western right. emotive, like whatever it is. Just find the sort of lyricism in your body uh, because it makes a difference. Yeah. You, you know, you've, you wrote something powerful that uh, I want to share, and I want you to, you know, comment on it again. Just just about you found a thing, an inspiration. You know, so I like what you wrote. You said, uh, I've come to believe inspiration is the most powerful force in the world. It possesses us. It changes our attitudes, our actions, and in so doing, our lives. Uh so, you know, I think Einstein said that uh, compounded interest was the most powerful force in the universe. <laughs> uh, you know, but your thing is inspiration. Yeah. And again, I, I know you found it at that concert, but maybe start to talk a little bit about how you apply it. Because I think, again, what's also powerful in the book is your, you know, your kind of um, uh, your six, six steps that you have, your, uh, your six skills of inspiration. We'll get to that in a second. But, you know. Where you know where does inspiration you know um, if it's if compounded interest is one force in the universe, inspiration is is this other one. Uh, how do you start to apply it? Right. So Bain and Company did a study where they looked at hundreds of companies around the globe, and they found that an inspired employee is two hundred and twenty-five percent more productive than an uninspired one. Mm. And, and you don't need Bain and Company to tell you that. You know it. You work nights, you work weekends, you work harder when you when you feel it. Right? The greatest problem in modern work is is in overwork. It's it's purposeless work. Right, right. Uh, and, and, and I do believe that that inspiration advantage, when you are inspired, you produce better. You generate better results. You're more productive. You're more imaginative. You're more successful. Um, is the thing that has created countries and businesses and masterpieces and won wars and uh, I mean, Plato. Sorry, this sounds really pretentious, but 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 Plato talks a lot about the power of inspiration through music. Mm. In, in the Republic. And, and, and he says, it's the force that could shape the minds of our children and rouse the spirits of our armies. But, but, but he's also really afraid that that inspiring force, that music might get in the wrong hands. It's, it's like well, Elvis Presley was emerging on the scene. Well, he did. He, he, thought, um, he, he thought that music should be regulated by the government, like the way we would regulate drugs today. And, uh, and I think he's right. Mm. Well, when you look at every great moment in societal upheaval, societal progress, just look in the United States, mm. there is music and inspiration. There are spirituals on plantations. There's Bob Dylan in the 60s. There's ABBA. There's disco at Studio 54 in the late 70s, a, a, a form of political protest for the LGBTQ community. I mean, music, inspiration, 
passion has a way of rousing people's spirits and in so doing, genuinely affecting change. I'm with you 100%. And, and actually, I wanna, on this point, I want to ask you about this moment in time. Uh, you know, where is music right now in this, you know, Trumpian world? You know, where is, who is going to lead us right. to some kind of promised land? Because I feel like we don't have, um, you know, the songs of protest. I don't see, you know, hear Dylan or, you know, Credence Clearwater Revival, you know, doing Fortunate Son, you know, back in the 60s. Right. Um, you know, we don't, I don't know, you tell me. I mean, are you... Because you're you're a very musical person. Yeah, no, it's I mean it's 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 a great question, right? I mean, it's hard to find a musician who doesn't wag their fist at Trump, and it's equally hard to find a song, <laughs> an anthem that's sort of gonna rally and, and mobilize. I, I think we've gotta look for music. I think we've gotta look for inspiration in the words of our political leaders. Obama was a master at this. Mm. So Al Gore in 2000 said he wanted to reduce carbon emissions 20%. That's pretty ambitious, right? But Barack Obama said he wanted to lower the tides of the ocean. That's preposterous. And he won. And, and, and he didn't win because of that, but he won because he had a way of framing things in epic terms that made us underdogs and heroes in this movement. You, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Yeah. This is poetry. This, this is lyrics. And, uh, and it, it's interesting. You, you see some of that emotion uh, in, in, in a Bernie, in, a, in an mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren uh, maybe there's some blue collar poetry in a Joe Biden, uh, but I, I I don't I don't know if we've got the candidate that is creating the lyrics mm-hmm. that could genuinely give the ugly, angry verses spewing out of the White House a run for its money. Well, I, I love what you're saying there because um, as much as I loved an inconvenient truth, Al Gore gave a PowerPoint. Right. presentation, right? And what you just said, you know, uh, Obama's uh, language about the tides was very poetic. And then, of course, uh, yes, we can. You know, this is a song, you know, that we, that we relate to. And you say something in the book that I think is very powerful. And it's going to segue into, uh, you know, kind of more of the business stuff I want to I get out of your brain. But I love what you said about um, uh, the, the, there were candidates who won on poetry. You know, I don't. I, I'm not in a very poetic way of saying it. So I hope I'm not butchering it. But I love this idea that you had this theory, or you know, your your observation that there are candidates who are winning on poetry, right. and you know, you list Obama and and and, and Reagan, um, and uh, and even Clinton. I mean, uh, and Bill Clinton. So I don't know, maybe talk a little bit about kind of the you know how poetry is a force for victory. Right. Right. So um. Mario Cuomo had had that great quote, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. Oh, that's good. It is, right? And I I think you should govern in poetry as well. Um, but 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 his his point was, and I, I think history has proven this, that the more emotive, warm, 
emotional, passionate client generally wins. And, and they win because they're able to rouse what Dan Balls at the Washington Post calls the intensity of the electorate, which is ultimately the determining factor. Mm. You know, you know we, we, we think it's just about numbers, but those numbers are driven by intensity in political campaigns, apparently. And that's what that's what inspiration does. It, it jazzes people up. So, I mean, you all know, you know, everybody knows the sort of the great lyrics of modern politics uh, from from Reagan to Obama to, well, not so much with Clinton, but um, to Kennedy. My favorite example is Lincoln. And I, I know one of your previous guests was, was Nancy Cohn, who is brilliant. And she talks in her book about the Gettysburg Address, mm-hmm. which, of course, Lincoln begins very famously four score and seven years ago. And I'd always thought that's how people spoke in the 1860s. Right. You know, I'm two score and four years old. <laughs> they, they, they didn't. They didn't. Mm. They, they, they hadn't used that sort of articulation for thousands of years. He was reaching back to the book of Psalms in a right. very highfalutin illusion. Right. I, I know this is so weird to, to believe, no, no, no. But, but, but Lincoln starting a speech with four score and seven years ago is almost as odd as Trump starting a speech with four score and seven years ago. But it does something. Mystic chords of memory. Right, right. But, but but it instantly disorientates an audience. What is going on here? <laughs> yeah, this is unusual. Mm. This is extraordinary. Something is about to happen. And in Lincoln's case, something did happen right there that, uh, that was mind-bending. Yeah. Well, I want to bring you now to... Uh, you're a client. You're at General <laughs> from Mills. Gettysburg from Gettysburg to a conference room. <laughs> from Gettysburg to, uh, where are they, Minneapolis? Where is General Mills? Um, Golden Valley. Golden Valley. Well, that's poetic. That's poetic. <laughs> that's not, you know, Plano. Um, but I want to bring it because, uh, you know, you're, you're walking into an organization that uh, was probably very PowerPointy, uh, very much interested in, in margin and logic. Uh, so maybe talk a little bit about, you know, applying some of this uh, inspiration. I'm sure you you know, you walked in there and you, you know, you were not like the others. Yeah, although, you know, from the outside, it seems like a real kind of pleated khaki mom jeans sort of place. There are people in there who are soulful and funky and interesting and creative. The problem is that, like many corporate cultures, this thing happens where people are, are are felt like they can't really bring their authentic selves to work. Mm. I mean, you see this all the time, don't you? Before mm. a meeting begins with a client, you're talking about Handmaid's Tale and movies and music, and and the PowerPoint goes on, and suddenly the, the robots emerge. Right, right. I mean, I, I remember saying to the CEO, General Mills, that uh, I, like, I, I love sons and daughters, but let's have bring yourself to work day. And he was like, and harumphed. Um, oh, that's a I don't, good idea. I, b- b- because, again, we don't realize how automated we become in these mm. corporate environments. And, uh, and so, so, so what, what I tried to do, along with the help of, of an amazing team, is show up in a way that invited other people to be as human as possible. Mm. So uh, you disorientate, you exude passion. Uh, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book that's real skill of inspiration is it's about love. Mm. You know, love is intoxifying, intoxicating. Mm. I don't even know what the word is. But uh, 
when, when you could identify what it is that you love and honor and respect about a person, you get a connection to that person that gets the very best out of them. And it's really hard to do in a corporate environment. Mm-hmm. You know, what, one of the stupidest corporate phrases I think is, I would never ask you to do something I wouldn't do myself. Right. I spent my life asking people to do things I wouldn't do myself. That's management. Because they're better <laughs> at it. Right, right. They're better right. at it. And that ability to say, this is your awesomeness. Yeah. And, and have people feel that. Um, is 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 real sort of liberating moment. So I I I, I don't know. You know, we we made some progress at General Mills. Um, did did you have your inspiration theory before you walked in the door? Not really. No, no. A lot so of this. Did, so yeah. did, So so some of it came from that experience. I mean, yeah. tell us about that. Well, I I mean, I as, as a guy who'd worked at ad agencies as a planner, as a guy who'd pitched dozens of of mm. clients as you have. Mm. Um, I started to realize that a very powerful thing in pitching a client was enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Showing up and saying, here's what's amazing about your brand, your consumer, your culture, your, here's what's amazing. Here's what we love. Mm -hmm. And and now I, I think sometimes agencies show up like like a pharmaceutical ad, right? Like here's your problem and we're the solution. (laughs) And it's like, oh. Don't don't do that. Yeah. Come and tell me what's on. But 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 I began to realize that just, just sheer enthusiasm about things um, is a really powerful uh, force mm-hmm. in a room, in a meeting, mm-hmm. in a culture. And uh, and so long as it's authentic, so long as you could really identify what it is. I I, I remember John Hegarty once said that the secret of great planners is generosity. Mm. You've got to find the thing to love. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but I'd say that's the secret to great communication, right? right? Find the thing to love. So you, when, when, you, when you got there, uh, were you in love, and we'll, maybe we'll use Cheerios as an example. I mean, were you in love with Cheerios before you got there or you found, you, you sort of showed up there and you went, wait, wait, I love this thing and these products are good right. and... You know, maybe talk a little bit about yeah. your your journey yeah. there, because because what one thing I'll say is that again, your book is very powerful in that it's there's this force called inspiration, and I'm going to show you, dear reader, here's how to here's how to apply it. You've got you've got six strategies uh, to do it. So maybe talk a little bit about what happened there in those walls in Golden Valley. Yeah, no, it's um, it's a good question. No, I didn't love Cheerios. You know, I didn't. I didn't love the cereal. I didn't love the brand. I thought its history of advertising, even though some of it was acclaimed, mm. was a bit too treacly and sentimental for mm. my tastes. I think Cheerios, like most of the brands at General Mills, forgot that they were food. Mm. They thought they were brands, and who the hell wants to put a brand in their mouth? And 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 I just thought it was important. And this is stuff that I learned through 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 the course of my career in advertising mm-hmm. with amazing people like Jeff Kling mm-hmm. and Pat Fallon and the people I was like. I just thought that the more we can market in a way that is transparently authentic about what we are, uh, the more success we would have. Wait a minute. What happened to inspiration? I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. But 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 but. There's something inspiring about a group of people saying, we went to a farm, we grew these oats, we toasted them, and here they are. 
as mm. opposed to look over here at this cute little girl who's mm. going to pull your heartstrings. Mm. Right? There, 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 there's something deeply moving mm. about showing up in a more authentic way. Mm. Yeah, I saw, again, something very interesting uh, in your book, this um, dynamism authenticity chart. Mm. This was really... Um, this again, this was something uh, disruptive. Maybe talk a little bit about that because I like how you um, framed it up as a form of a metric. Yeah, it was not just a positioning tool, but it was a metric. Yeah. So maybe you know, try to. I know we're here on, on a podcast, but but bring it to life. So, to so, us. so this is cobbled together from learning that I got from you know Havas and Fallon and JWT and all these sort of tools that agencies have. I sort of cobbled together my Frankenstein version <laughs> of it. But but maybe the most interesting metric actually comes from the world of politics. Pollsters realized a few elections ago that the greatest predictor of election day success is not, hey, person, who are you going to vote for? Mm. It's which candidate do you think has momentum? Mm. Who's gaining ground? Who's losing ground? Who's stuck in place? And there's this bandwagon effect, right? Candidates with the most mo end up with the most votes. It's a better predictor than asking people who they're going to vote for. So you think the same with brands. That's a great way of measuring brands. What's their sense of momentum, energy, enthusiasm, dynamism? But you realize that that energy alone isn't really enough to sustain long-term growth. So you've got to combine that with, uh, with, 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 with what I call authenticity. But it's really the kind of real deal metrics of does this thing do what it says? Does it work? Is it trustworthy? Is it honest? Is it reliable? Will it get the job done? And when you've got those two things working together, you are golden. So, so, so I guess it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tool – that concludes whether you're a brand or a human being, the way to win is by being yourself mm-hmm. dramatically. Yeah. <laughs> by being yourself with verve and with energy. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's very powerful. The, the why for those at home uh, uh, listening to us uh, go off here, you know, the y-axis uh, is um, uh, dynamism, and the x-axis is authenticity. And if you just laid that out on a sheet of paper, I think you could start to plot you, if you're a brand, and where you sit, and where your competition sits. It's uh, I, I, that was fascinating, and I linked it to uh, as I was reading it that oh, okay, so this. Um, this dynamism is inspiration. And then the authenticity is sort of the perspiration of the brand. You know? Right. It was, it was really interesting that way. And what I, what I loved about uh, what you also said, too, is that, again, is inspiration is this um, – what we you know heretofore thought was so ephemeral. You have six ways to apply it. Mm. So uh, I'll lay them out here. Maybe, you, you, maybe you, you tell me your favorite one. But the six skills of inspiration, ambition – Action, atmosphere, attitude, affection, and authenticity. We talked a little bit about authenticity. I mean, of those six, what's one you right. think? Well, I, I, I think the easiest one to work with and arguably the most powerful is ambition. And it's the really simple notion that nobody is inspired to do small things. We're inspired to do grand things. We're inspired to do big things. When you are faced with a daunting, Herculean task, your knees shake, and you feel like an underdog, which is the best thing in the world, right? Because underdogs, well, they either die or they become heroes, right? 
right? It, it, it fits into the, the, the dreams and the ambitions we have as human beings knocking around with thoughts inside of our heads. So, so I, I don't know. I can't run a marathon in three hours. But, um, but if I want to run a marathon, maybe, maybe, maybe that should be my goal. You, you know, there was a study done at Concordia University where they tried to figure out how to get the best performance out of elite athletes. And these were Olympic-level rowers. And they divided them into two groups. In one group, they gave a modest goal, you know, shave 5% off of your best time. And the other, a delusional ambition, shave 50% off your time. And they monitored these athletes over the course of a couple of years. And, and what they discovered is that those athletes who were given the most delusional, preposterous goals were the ones who made the most progress. Mm. They failed and failed again because right. that's what heroes do. But they journeyed harder. They journeyed faster. They got better results. And, and, and in our world of marketing, it just makes me think, why are we showing up at meetings saying, here's how you grow 2%. Mm-hmm. Here's how you launch the brand in a new market. Here's how you extend right. the brand. Let's think preposterously. And some brands do. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the work you've done with Apple is delusional by mm. nature. Um, other brands out there want to make all women feel beautiful, inspire the athlete in everybody. That's the stuff that gets the best out of, out of a brand mm. and the marketplace. Yeah, I will say that um, delusional, you use that word in your book. I thought that was very disruptive. I thought, ooh, you know, because we think, you know, delusional is, oh, that's just the crazy, you know, advertising people talking. But again, uh, the power here is that, no, no, delusional will lead to actually incremental success. Right. It, it was, it, again, it, it kind of opened my brain up. It was, it was really, really kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. All right. So we talked a little bit about your uh, your foray in, into the world of um uh, client world. I mean, let's talk a little bit about your journey because uh, it's an interesting, interesting life. So, tell us a little bit about uh, you know what makes Michael Michael. <laughs> how, did, how did you how did you get here? Well, I I, I mean I was dead lucky. I was adopted by a family of Italian immigrants and they were loud and passionate and they shouted when they were happy and when they were angry and they cooked me amazing food. And I mean, I, I grew up in an environment that was as anti-waspy as possible. So I think from the get-go, I was pinballed with, uh, with emotions left and right, which, um, which, which, which is now what, what I've written about. Wow. And do, do you think, um, you know, being adopted, uh, like, like Lee Clow was adopted, you know, oh, Steve, jo- no yeah, Steve Jobs was adopted. And I think, uh, um, you know, Lee would always, you know, when we would ever discuss it, he, he'd always say that, you know, um, he felt that he was, you know, he was handpicked. He was, he was chosen. You know, he had a yeah. very healthy way of looking at it. I mean, how do you think that, 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 that helped you being adopted? Yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I was very happy and very grateful for my, my family and my parents. Uh, not all adopted kids are, right? Some have yeah, sort of big gaping wounds, and yeah. I, I, I feel lucky that I, I, I don't. Um, I do think, though, maybe on some weird unconscious level, it makes me more desperate for love and attention. Please pick me. Please pick me. I'm the puppy in the window. I want a home. <laughs> Um, I don't know, maybe a little more insecure and desperate for love. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. So, and then uh, how did uh, your Catholic school upbringing uh, affect your, your career? Oh, it was <laughs> the best. Um, high school in particular, I went to a very strict all-boys Catholic school on Long Island. 
And um, I was I was out of place. I mean, I came from a, f- a family of guidos. We showed up and I was wearing capizios and the other kids were wearing shoes with pennies in them. I'd never seen such a preposterous thing. And I felt very out of place. But uh, I joined the debating team and, and mm. my coach, Brother Steven, uh, pulled me aside one day and he said, Michael, I think you could be a great debater. We've just got to handle the way that you talk. Mm. And I said, uh, what do you mean, brother? What are you talking about? And he goes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so every day after school for about four months, I'd go to Brother Stevens' uh, classroom and he would he would teach me how to speak. And uh, it wasn't that he wanted me to be a different human being, but, but he just knew I'd have more success at that endeavor. I almost called it a sport. <laughs> at that endeavor, uh, if, uh, if I didn't have to deal with the burden of, you know, biased judges because they didn't like uh, my Long Island accent. Right. Uh, and he, he did something. He, he did something. And if I write about this in the book, and I never expected to. I had, I had almost forgotten about it. But he, he did something one day where he pulled me aside and he gave me a book. He gave me Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by mm, James Jesus. Joyce, which mm. I devoured. I'd never read anything that spoke so deeply to me. It was like a Marcy song in mm. novel form, but but even better. And, uh, and you know, it's a story about a kid, as you know, growing up and throwing off the burden of his upbringing, his family, the tradition, the country, the Catholicism, all of it is Good gone. He's gonna be a, yeah, he's going to be an artist. But, but, but it hit me that this book about rebelling against all of those things was given to me by a monk, by a brother at a conservative high school. And I just think it was such an act of, it was my formative moment of inspiration. Mm. It was such an act of love of understanding, of empathy. You know, maybe in a way he was telling me that all the feelings I had of being out of place and not sure mm. where I belonged were things that he had felt as well and and work it out when you're true to yourself. You know, it's interesting you say that because I was having a conversation yesterday with a couple of other, uh, you know, people who run agencies. Uh, as and, you do yes, at the clubhouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as we were wont to do at the 4 A's <laughs> board meeting. But what was interesting was what we were talking about uh, the quote-unquote crazies yeah. of our business. Um, because we're, you know, we're all sitting here going, well, if everybody goes to the management consulting side, what's going to happen to the crazies? Because I'm not sure the crazies are going to do so well at Deloitte. We don't, we don't know. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, – the difference between your agency life and your client life. Again, right. it's it's rare that I know more and more people are, are sort of jumping, you know, from agency to client. I think it would be helpful for people to, you know, understand, you know, in your experience, what was it like? Right. The agencies you worked with and versus your client experience. Right. So, yeah, I, I worked at one client. So it's a sample of one. Mm. And there are clients out there who are radically different and bold and brave and crazy and creative. But 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 for me... But we'll, we'll cover is, the other 99%. Yeah. <laughs> it is assumed in agency land that creativity is a force for good, is a force for business growth. Right. In client land, creativity might 
be a force for good, might be a force for growth. So too, my pricing strategy or distribution strategy or innovation or just sheer media muscle. Mm-hmm. It, 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 and, and, and creativity is sort of diminished to, to a tool that you might use if the consultants say you should. <laughs> Whereas it create, at ad agencies, it's, um, it's the tool. It's the tool. And, and, and that was kind of disorientating for me mm. uh, and not in a way that I expected because uh, my, my response to that wasn't, oh, man, you clients have got it all wrong. Creativity is the end all and be all. In a weird way, my response was, hey, agencies – there are all these other tools that you've got to find a way of influencing. And we say that, right? We say we want to be business partners all the time, but it's really hard to be a business partner unless you are facile with that complete suite of tools that our client marketers play with. I'm not even talking about COOs and CFOs. These are marketing responsibilities. So um, I, I think that, that that was a big difference to me. I also think it goes goes back to the thing I was saying before about the authenticity of the people and how they show up. For the most part, agencies are really good at inviting people to be themselves with all their peculiarities, and corporate environments aren't. There was a different energy, different mm. directional energy for me. In client land, the energy was very vertical, very up and down. Everyone's looking at their boss and their boss's boss. They're looking up. They don't want to make a mistake. They want to get their review. They want to get their bonus, which which essentially drives everything, all the decisions. Whereas agencies have a really horizontal perspective. They're looking at each other and their friends and the culture outside the windows of the agency. And I don't know. I, I just think if 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 client cultures looked out as much as they looked up, it would be exciting for all of us. I'm with you 100%. I, I was talking – I was on a podcast and someone asked me about – my career in New York versus my career in, in L.A. And uh, I said, you know, when I started in New York, it was very vertical. It's exactly what you're saying. A person on top of a person on top of a person on top of a person. And when I got out to L.A., it was horizontal. And I started to develop this theory on horizontal thinking, right. that there was something about the freedom to look left and right and the openness that led you to open thinking and being open to ideas. And I love how that's a geographical truth as well. New York is a vertical city. L.A. is your role. Yeah, yeah. It, it's why you have to get up to high floors in New York to yeah. see the horizon. So uh, as, as we start to wind down here, um, this has been great, by the way. I think. Oh, it's been awesome. The, the, the Thank pe- you so much. The, the people listening, I really hope you're taking notes because I think Michael you know, hits on some very powerful stuff. Um, uh, I had a thought for you uh, that has just escaped me. Um, oh, the book itself. Yeah. The book itself. So when did you start writing it? Oh, this was exciting. So um, – I was at General Mills for almost three years. We got new leadership. There was no way we were seeing eye to eye. And this was an opportunity to do what uh, what I'd wanted to do probably for about 15 years, which was, which was write a book. Uh, so when I left General Mills, I, I started writing. And, uh, and that experience was amazing because uh, I, I, I thought just sit down and write a book. Apparently you don't. <laughs> I was so lucky to get an agent. He took me on as his charity case. And he said, well, first you've got to write the book proposal. 
I was like, what's that? Well, it's, it, it's, it's about 60,000 words. It, it's wow. almost a book in and of itself that is part detailed outline, but it's really a marketing plan. Mm. Who are you selling to? How are you selling to them? Who's going to buy it? Why are they going to buy it? Where are you going to speak? And But, 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 but when I, I finally got a publisher and I got a deal, I was like, well, this is great. This is my outline. Look, I've got it. Mm. And I sat down to start writing, and uh, I got to page 30. And I was done. I was out. I was spent of words. I was out of ideas. I got to page 30. And, and, and it hit me that I think, I think all of us could write an amazing 30-page book. I page have, 31 is so fucking hard. Because you're, the experience of reading your book, it is like jazz. I mean, the oh, thing, wow. I, mean I think it, it really is uh, mellifluous. I mean, oh. you, you just start to roll on stuff. So I'm very surprised to hear that. Well, well here's what happened. Here, here's how I got to page 31 and beyond. Uh, I quickly accepted that this was a team sport. Hmm. So you have an agent, you have an acquisitions editor, you have an editor, a managing editor, you have a publisher, you start interviewing people Hmm. and talking to neuroscientists and jazz musicians and marketers. And before you know it, uh, you're not writing a book by yourself. You're Hmm. writing a book with all these brilliant people whose thoughts are knocking around your head. And all you've got to do is give a sort of coherent narrative to it. That's how Gladwell does it. Well, right. Well, (laughs) well, I mean, I, 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 I. I'm deeply envious of Malcolm Gladwell, oh, but 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 I find a lot of these nonfiction books to make uh, a, a brilliant point, mm. repeated twelve times with slightly different right. shades of a case study. And I, I don't know if I succeeded, but I desperately wanted to write something where the next chapter would be different. Mm-hmm. and in some ways more entertaining than yeah. the chapter before it. Yeah, interesting. Would you do it again with a team of publishers or would you do it, I don't know if you are familiar with the James Altucher, you know, his stuff. He, this is a, he's a podcaster. He just does it himself. He's a oh, self-publisher yeah. and he would never go back to the old way. How, yeah. how do you feel about the actual experience well, well, being adopted, I needed the validation of the industry, Rob. <laughs> I am, um, I um. There are some brilliant books out there that are self-published, but um, I I felt like I needed the expertise of other people. Good. I'd like to write something else, but I, I think it would be be a more fiercely creative endeavor. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, give us one piece of advice. You know, we we have clients who listen. We have rising stars uh, in the business who listen. Um, maybe give a piece of advice for someone who wants to write a book. One of the things that surprised me in writing the book is every day I'd go to the library and I'd write. But on the way to the library, I'd listen to music. And, and I found after a few weeks that when I read back what I had written, it had lots of different tones and voices. Mm. That that what I wrote on a day that I listened to U2 was different than what I wrote on a day when I listened to NPR. And I, and, and I was shocked at how sort of porous <laughs> I was as an agent, <laughs> that things were coming in were really affecting my mood. But that's what music does, right? Music affects our moods. And, and I shouldn't have been surprised that it was what's coming out in the words. So, um... I knew that to get consistency, I needed to find the sort of mental soundtrack for my book. And I picked a band that I don't even like. I don't even like this band, but their their tone, their vibe, their verve felt sort of right and populist and fun. And I spent a year and a half listening to Coldplay. 
Um, again, because I just think they're they're fun and they're sort of anthemic and they're sincere and they're earnest. And those were things that I, that I wanted I wanted my writing to be. So, so my advice for for somebody writing a nonfiction book is find your voice, but then find the surrounding voices that help your voice do its job as opposed to get distracted. That's great. That's really good. Well, Michael, you have been an inspiration. Oh, Rob, thank you. The book is Stop Making Sense, The Art of Inspiring Anybody. Uh, I think... People are really going to like it. I mean, listen, you told me what, they're in the, you're in your third printing. So we already know they like it. We already have the data. The data's already proving they like it. So, but, but, but go out, but, 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 but read this book. Because again, I think the power of it is, it is inspirational in a very pragmatic way. You teach people how to be inspiring. So thank you for inspiring us. It was thank great. you, Rob. This has been awesome. Really appreciate it. You got it. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shite Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashiteday.ny.com. <laughs>